0: This episode of Camel Assembly Radio is brought to you by DFNS. Okay, so I'm spraying DFNS products on my clothes and sneakers to refresh and protect them, right? And I think, isn't it bad to be bringing more plastic bottles into the world?
1: No, we absolutely do need to cut down on anything plastic anytime we can. The thing with environmental issues is that there are few perfect solutions, but we have to start doing something now. DFNS are really about making green change and not just talking about it. Some of their packaging is made from sugarcane, Their bottles save 32% on carbon emissions compared to traditional aerosol. And 75% of each Aeropack bottle is made from PET, an easily recyclable plastic.
0: Right now, we have to take personal responsibility to do better and support the brands that are doing the same. I freaking love sugarcane. Okay,
1: this is one that you can't eat? about you Yelda is when people <laughs> don't fuck what are you doing? Whoa, you good okay? Good, you okay? Good, over there? good okay. Good okay. You good, good okay. Are you good Yelda you know what I find really funny when people meet you for the first time is how they are shocked by how small <laughs> you are. Because you're you're a teeny tiny human. <laughs> no. You're really small. <laughs> But you wouldn't know that if you followed you on social media or even if you watched one of your DJ sets from afar because you're often standing on little boxes. Hey.
0: Little. You don't need to share that I have a milk crate on my tech rider.
1: It's adorable and it's necessary.
0: Yeah, you know what? I feel like every time I meet someone that has either heard of me, like a friend of yours, or somebody that is a friend through social media, and we meet in real life. Usually, people look all the way down, and then they look back up and wonder where the rest of me is. <laughs> And I think it's all just really a karmic sick joke.
1: But it's it's funny because you you are so big. You know I'm not a five foot little woman. From your voice to your laugh to your opinion
0: to my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> playing, you're, you're, playing. Not,
1: small. you're um, not small.
0: Yeah, you know I think it is actually. There was this doula that told me, this is the first lifetime I've come back as a doula a like like a. Midwife? Okay, that's... Yeah, okay, I guess that was... The, she do, She does a bunch of things. She's very spiritual and, you know, reads energy. A midwife um, came to you and gave you a spiritual message? Yes. She gave me a couple spiritual messages. Don't give me that look. I'm serious. No, okay, that's fine. And she told we me this was the first time I have come back as a woman. To be honest, I'm one of the taller women in my family. Mm. And growing up, my mom, she would say to, like, my little cousins, she'd be like make sure you drink your milk so you become as tall as Yelda.
2: (laughs) Or like even still,
0: when I go home, she'll make the joke of like, oh, my tall daughter is home. Can you get that from the cupboard for me? Because my mom is like four foot nine. Um,
1: Meanwhile, when at your house we put anything on the second shelf above your kitchen bench. I think you guys are taunting me. You can't reach it. I don't mind it. I think you actually love it. I and don't I don't
0: mind it, but, you know, I think that there is really something real to the fact that, like, people don't realize being short, there's actual um, issues. You know, for example, the fact that my feet don't hit, hit the ground and, like, it has really affected my back and my pelvis and a lot of rotational things in my body uh, being short. I'm actually, like, one inch away from technically being able to get a handicap permit. Yeah, and the world is not created for you. Uh, Yeah, people are like, Yelda, you're not handicapped. And it's like, no, I mean like, disabilities look like different things, and actually height is a thing. And it's real, like even DJing, where I do have to get a milk crate, because otherwise you wouldn't even know there was a DJ behind the booth. (laughs) (laughs) Just be two little hands! Two little hands! Scratching! (laughs) Wicked, wicked, wicked! Mm.
1: Did you spend the first five years of your life living on a boat in Hong Kong? I did. When people ask where I'm from, which happens constantly, I will often say Hong Kong, which is surprising enough, apparently. Although you said this really well once. You were like, the only people who tell me I don't look Afghan are people who are not Afghan. And I say the same thing. People who look at me and they're like, you're not from Hong Kong, are people who are not from Hong Kong. (laughs) Yeah, Um, totally. Because Hong Kong is very diverse, and uh, yeah, my parents worked in the airline industry, and w- they were just really adventurous people. And so I spent the first five years of my life on a sixty-foot catch, uh, which is a big sailing boat. It has two masts, wooden, um, and that was really random. But I think informs a lot of. The strange non-linear decisions that uh, I've made in life and, um, you know, my parents, we would sail to the Philippines from Hong Kong and I remember, like, being in the middle of storms and they would literally tie me to the mast so I wouldn't (laughs) fall overboard. (laughs) Um, And they would tell me stories of that. I would just be, like, maniacally cackling, like, having so much fun in these giant waves as the boat went up and down. And we would um cast anchor in these sort of hidden bays and my dad would play the guitar and it was just like really weird now i think about it that it's like that's that's a really unusual experience such an
0: adventurous life
1: yeah and and i mean at times like it was pretty safe but there was definitely moments where you know we would encounter in the philippines there are a lot of pirates and i remember people would approach the boat they would have AK-47s, and my dad would always have a certain amount of products that you would barter, so you would give them cigarettes or wow. batteries and different things, and then they would leave you alone, and then we would make bread and catch fish, and it was, <laughs> it was just like, it really was like Robinson, what's his name, Robin Robin Caruso? But like that whole, yeah. that whole shipwreck life, yeah. yeah, again, come to inform um, this adventurousness. I think that if you see life as an adventure, it really, it, it feels a lot more manageable.
0: And you weren't just on boats, you were, you're like a, what I, th- what I tell people about you is that you're a caviar cockpit
1: baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, twat,
0: in other yeah, words. She was just, you know, in first class with Mother Teresa, no big deal, very similar to my childhood.
1: <laughs> yeah, there were, that was a wild, you know, we were coming back from Bombay to Hong Kong and Mother Teresa was on one of my dad's flights and so I do have a photo next to her. And, um, what did she say to your parents? She said that I was going to live a blessed life. Oh, mother! <laughs> Which I I feel like I have. I do definitely feel like I have lived a very very blessed life, and I'm very thankful for that. So yeah, it was it was definitely a, a very um, unusual life, but it it I'm so so thankful for how broad um, the perspective I had was from from an early age. And I I actually often think that as well about your life for very different reasons. When you first came to Hong Kong and I first kind of met you and we were spending time together, I heard you call your parents and you started speaking to them in Farsi, which is a language I've heard before, but I'm certainly not familiar with. And I would say that most people aren't familiar Mm. with it because it's a language that... It's not like Chinese or Spanish where mm. it's quite prolific, you know, unless you have a lot of Persian friends, you probably don't hear Farsi. But you not only speak Farsi, your family tell you that you speak Farsi as though you grew up in Afghanistan, mm. which you didn't.
0: Farsi even, interestingly enough, is not even the language that I speak. The language I speak is Dari, which is the dialect of Farsi. So mm. it's such a small amount of people that speak that Wait, and so Does that
1: mean that, so Persians speak Farsi... So, and
0: Iranians speak... So, the Persian Empire used to speak Farsi. Now, today, what it looks like is that Iranians speak Farsi. M- Afghans speak either Pashto, Urdu, or Dedi. So, there's like a small, smaller amount of Afghans that speak this dialect of Farsi called Dedi, like my people.
1: So, oh if you no. spoke Farsi and... Derry, do you understand each other? Like, what's the difference?
0: Yeah, it's sort of like... You know what's so funny? That I actually didn't speak for the first two years of my life. Because I would go to daycare and be hearing English. And I would go home and my family would be speaking ready. This is in Canada? Yeah. And eventually, like, at two... I think my parents took me to the doctor and they're like, she's just still not speaking. And they're like, well, she's a little confused. Um, Stick to one language. And since you can't control the fact that you live in Canada and everyone's speaking English, she's going to have to learn English. So my parents had to start like, you know, fake speaking English. They couldn't really even speak English. So my mom really started trying to learn English. And my Mm. best friend when I was like five years old, actually is the one that taught started teaching me my language my mother tongue it wasn't like I learned my mother tongue first and then I learned English. no I actually learned English but then my mother tongue came to me so naturally I think some people maybe do have affinities to language more than others but yeah I ended up having people growing up thinking like you sound like a grandma that's lived her whole life in Afghanistan that doesn't even make sense but I really love my language and I've I've never spoken in English with my parents. You know, that's not the relationship we have, and so I think from me, because
1: your family is is very Muslim still, <laughs> for life, <laughs> for life, baby. Hi, uh, you know, but um, you you are really really brown, you know, and totally. like I think that was something that <laughs> you got confused about with me when you were like, oh, you're you're not as brown as I thought, um, but you really like <laughs> your. Every tradition, the way you speak, the food you eat, it is still seeped in tradition.
0: Sometimes I say I grew up
1: in Afghanistan in
0: Canada. Like, you know, it's like I did not live like a Western life besides going to Western public school. I very much had family that would not compromise on the fact that I was an Afghan girl, a Muslim girl, and That was their main priority was for me to remain being those things. So, I wasn't allowed to play sports or engage in music and drama and any type of like activity. Hanging out with friends, you know, it was not allowed. And I know this sounds really oppressive, but I also understand that there are many people that can hear this and relate because this is the reality of a lot of brown women and a lot of Muslim women and you know, even in my life is like people think I moved to New York to chase my dreams, but I moved to New York because I got married in a very traditional way. And so, yeah, it it, it is very real that uh, a lot of people, I think, assume because I'm very well adjusted that I have lived a very Western life, but I'm actually really late to many parties because this culture is one that I feel like I'm constantly assimilating to learning about. And it's a really interesting place to be when you're trying to Assimilate and feel like you belong while holding on to your culture and beliefs.
1: And I think that's the really crucial difference in how we think about things actually you and I in a lot of ways because one of the words that you, you used previously about how your family approached your upbringing was uncompromising. You were not to become like the people you were surrounded by. Mm. You were different and you had to be uncompromising in holding those values versus me which was the opposite of that thing. Growing up as a mixed child in a mostly white community and speaking differently and looking differently. So not just being the only brown girl in the school, but in the whole region with my sister, it was very much like, okay, well, what's going to make you feel comfortable? Do that thing. And um, I think that's also where we've seen our difference in sort of you are very much an activist and you will speak on behalf of those who are not being represented or that don't have the words and you will stand up and you will fight. And on the other side, I feel like I am... A lot The solution-finding diplomat that's right. like looking
0: for peace and understanding all sides. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with, with that. And aren't both necessary?
1: Yeah, and I actually think they are. And I think it's important not to necessarily categorize oneself, but to recognize that you will naturally err towards one side or the other. And it doesn't make you wrong on either side. I think we can, you know, previously, I think we've seen activists as very extreme people and, and hot-headed and reactionary, and we're sort of coming to a time where we're recognizing they're actually very brave. And then I think in the same breath, we can look at diplomats and say, oh, look how measured they are and how how well-intending and how solution-oriented. And yet there can be a lot of cowardice because that might offend, you know? So it's like there yeah. there are both sides.
0: To be honest, I can't say that I grew up wanting to... Speak at the UN To be You know To be honest That was never Like the things That I cared about well, What did I care about when I, when I was growing up Things I've Actually not just Growing up today Real things I believe I tell people It's like If I die I hope to get assassinated Because that means I'm doing some real shit In this world it, You know My great grandfather And my grandfather They died for human rights In Afghanistan It's just like It is this real pride That I have About the lineage That I come from And that like I really do come from a family of warriors, risk-takers, people that potentially didn't master their tone, but they didn't ever compromise their values, and I do want to create that life for myself, and I am attracted to Malcolm X when he would say things such as, black Americans are living passively, and we need to want to die, and you know, that's a different conversation, but I that resonated with me. You know, I do feel that type of stuff, and that stuff that can be classified as aggressive really sounds uh, appropriate to me.
1: Yeah, it's like you're, you're, your family found the hill that they were gonna die on, and then they literally died on it, you yeah. know? And, and I, I think that's so admirable, and I can recognize. And I get that people
0: are tired of also fighting and dying, but I feel like it's like aging, it's like, what's your other option? You're either gonna fight or you're gonna like die either way, you know. I and I think that I really also can see the effectiveness of, for example, the approaches that you've been able to take that I haven't been able to take, you know. And I know so much that I do have a place in this, and my approach is also learned family, culture, all of that. But it is, it is. Eye-opening, watching your approach when it comes to mediating or facilitating conversations or just, just your motive is actually sometimes different than mine. Yeah, or my motive is to tip the message over and your motive is to actually understand maybe the messages and make sure that both sides are communicating them.
1: Yeah, and I think we need both. As you say, you need to be shouted some things, and then oftentimes you also need to feel safe and be delivered messages. And I think that they, they go both ways. I think for me, I really, I can't help but approach things in that way. It's like very much by being raised by my father, who was very well-spoken, who was in the Air Force. And, and Shout out Tony Hanna. He <laughs> is the one. He's such a beautiful man, and he was always very calculated and fair. And absolutely same with my mother. My mother was very rational and able to break things down in a way that ensured, you know, even as we were kids, she would be like, I'm telling you to not do that. Why am I telling you not to do that? And my desire is always to be a bridge because I I have always been Mm. a bridge, you know, Um, and I, I think that bridges sometimes get walked over and I think that's also something I realized. You actually do have to compromise a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a balance and I think it's it's like knowing where to compromise, Mm -hmm. I think is a really And also your life,
0: if you look at your life is like it really is two cultures that had to find a solution to make a family work. Yes. Exactly. Whereas my (laughs) family one hundred percent Afghan And if anyone knows anything about Afghans, like just incredibly prideful, we are unlike other type of people, tribal, tribal people. Standing and being unafraid is probably one of the biggest values. That's a lot of how my upbringing has been. Is like you better stand up and be unafraid and know you are not like all these other people. Except don't forget you're a woman. And if you're a woman, you should be afraid and sit your ass down. So there is like really uh, polarizing feelings also. And values. Yeah. It's like there is this innate, endless. I've seen in culturally familial people that stand and they fight and there's no other choice. But also, like, let's be fair, there's a lot of hiding and sitting and being afraid in every
1: culture. Submission,
0: yeah. You know what I like about both, both sort of stories that our families have gone on is like, they've been risky, whether you are having caviar in first class with Mother Teresa or in the belly of a refugee on a camel, it is cool to see how people have taken risks in their lives and created their families and sort of either taken diplomatic approaches or
1: activist approaches. Like, there's so much relatability. I really feel like risk is the boundary between your current life and the next one, you know? Mm. And, like, you can't get there without taking a risk. As diplomats and activists and all the other things that have formed our community, we have we do see people of all kinds who... Who are fighting? Who are able to translate messages? Who are able to support? Who are on the front line? And um, and I think that's part of the the richness of Camel Assembly's community, which I think you need to embody, as you say so well, Yelda. You know, things look like the people who are making them, mm. um, and because we've all been making this together, I think it it has the traits of its of its many aunties and uncles and. <laughs> <laughs> Pamela
0: Assembly's Rapid Fire. Not so rapid, but very fire. Rapid fire, rapid fire, rapid fire, rapid fire. Fire. Rapid fire. Okay, five questions. Five questions. As we've been doing these rapid fire questions with our guests, thought it would be cool to have maybe our community submit some questions for us
1: to do a rapid fire round. Do
0: a little rapid fire round.
1: It could be, it Maybe could be also rapid.
0: It could be a little less <laughs> rapid because actually, people sent in really beautiful questions, and I would love to take a handful of them and answer them. Cool. I'm gonna start with the hard one. Okay. <laughs> it might not be hard, it might be easy. Wow, oh, this is a good one. A moment where we disliked
1: one another. I don't think I disliked you ever. I think I didn't understand you, <laughs> and that resulted in resentment or, or maybe an attempt to control. And I definitely can recognize at the beginning of our friendship, you know, when our community were first starting to intermingle, I just thought you were so loud, and I didn't know what it was. If I'm honest, like I didn't know if it was like attention seeking or like the need to assert oneself or to be a dominant figure in, in any room or just like a lack of control. Like I didn't know what it was. And I think what I've recognized in myself is like, I wasn't good with some of the things inside of me. And so I looked at you and I was like, oh, that's a lot. Because I, I couldn't look at the, the a lot in me. I think we dislike in other people what makes us look at things or feel things that we're not willing to confront and so now that I feel like I've done a lot of work on myself I look at you and when <laughs> you're still as loud but I, you know it's really endearing and I think I, I admire how much you live your life according to who you are and I see when other people react to you in the same way that I initially did it's because usually people um, don't like how entitled you are to be yourself and it's this norm that you know we are all conforming to something i don't want to do it either so why aren't you doing it and then that results in resentment Mm.
0: so much of my loudness is whether it's my speaking or my laughing is natural but also potentially has become a, a mechanism for rebellion through my life and living a life where I was constantly silenced, and it did become my rebellion.
1: But again, you were silenced because people didn't want you to break outside of the norm that you were supposed to adhere to. It wasn't because you were rude or because you were me. You are the kindest person that I know. So that's never. it was never because you had a character flaw and that they, they needed to bring you in because you were hurting people. It's, it's the conversation because of
0: that muchness, right? I think yes. a lot of, especially women... I've shared this conversation with where it's like, I am a storm, you know, I am too much, I am, you know, uh, too loud, too, whatever it is, and um, yeah, I think there is something to definitely balance in that my relationship with my tone is one that I'll probably forever be on, but a lot of my natural response to trying to break ice is to be myself and try to be the most myself. And if I have to be loud to sort of break the silence, I will do it. And if I have to laugh really hard so that I could potentially make it so everyone else can laugh a little and we can warm up, like fine, you know? I think um, I have no problem with that.
1: And society hates a woman who's herself.
0: A moment I disliked you was nearly two years ago in India when I was hanging out with you and your family and your little sister, she's like my little sister. And also I am the little sister in my family. And so in those sort of years where she's coming into womanhood and you guys are going through like so many dynamic shifts and resolutions and growth in your own relationship, like I remember just being so defensive towards you as like, in watching you be a big sister and like feeling very triggered and seeing a lot of the things that like I had to experience as a little sister that I felt you were doing to Tasha. And I think that was a moment where I really just felt like you didn't understand how important your responsibility was as a big sister and how important that role was in her growth. And I wasn't allowing to remember that you were also just a human. I I feel like I did project what I needed from my big sister in that travel experience with you and your family where I was really, I just disliked some
1: of the older sister tendencies that I saw. But you know, it's like such a weird thing to be a big sister because you do embody both mother and sister. At, uh, at the same time, sure. and I actually almost would counter your point about not taking your responsibility seriously as a big sister. Oh and yeah, you're right. Like you're right. We take it too, too seriously. seriously. We take it so seriously that we think that totally. we need to control and protect and direct. And you know, I I definitely recognize that I thought I knew best. Off to a lighter question. <laughs>
0: Also I feel like we could talk about these things now because you and Tashi have such a beautiful relationship.
1: We do. She's the best thing. Favorite location
0: of a Camel Assembly ever. It's the boat for me. I it's the boat. Like I can say like I loved every Camel Assembly location. No, like that boat was an actual dream that came to life and um It was really special because it was a manifestation and I really had visualized a boat experience with my girls that was like safe. Yeah, it was 35 sisters on a boat in Hong Kong. I think that
1: for me, definitely when we launched in New Market, I I definitely was pinching myself. Whether that was in the backyard of one of our sisters in Bombay or this ridiculous very Emirati Dubai Mm -hmm. I don't even, there was a fireplace and a pool and marble, like it was like overlooking a bay but (laughs) every single time and I I think this specifically applies to Hong Kong um, there was a camel assembly that happened at the same time as the women's march going on in America it was, I think it was January of 2017 Mm. and, um, and we marched up the peak which is Hong Kong's most famous um, hike. You know, there was like 40 women that marched up to the top of this summit and and we had a camel assembly at the top and um, love a mountain, can't get enough mountains (laughs) in my life. But I also, you know, I I think symbolically that was a really, really beautiful, powerful moment of unity. Um, And so that that one definitely sticks out for me. Mm. Do you want to pick the next one? Sure. Uh, the most surprising thing you've heard on this journey of creating Camel Assembly? Whoa. The most surprising thing for me probably was when we were in Kenya and we launched Camel Assembly Nairobi. And first of all, I was surprised that 50 women showed up um, we, we and you and I didn't live in Kenya at the time. So that was pretty amazing. And um, the demographics of the room were quite unusual because in Kenya... People, like in many other parts of the world, people don't cross-pollinate. And in that room, we literally had a third Indian Kenyans, a third African Kenyans, and then a third expats or immigrants, people who were working in Kenya that weren't from Kenya. Multiple times on that night, people looked around the room and they were like, this never happens. And for me, as somebody, again, who is constantly straddling races and groups and socioeconomic uh, dynamics that was a very interesting and surprising coming together that really was very natural and we didn't really even orchestrate. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was such a special assembly, oh man. I think that the most surprising thing, and to be honest, it was just recently at the authenticity assembly we ran at Google here in New York, When I realized this constant, over four years of holding these circles and these safe spaces that, you know, for the healthiest person is a therapeutic experience. And realizing that every time a woman would cry, she would apologize. And to be honest, that Mm -hmm. really was surprising to me. It was like, oh my God. We all know there's nothing wrong with crying. We know you're not weak if you cry. We know your body needs what you, it needs no different than yawning and laughing. But the fact that every single time we cry, we say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I don't know what's come over me. Um, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I'm doing this. It was just really surprising. I'm not even gonna get into how, you know, sad it is.
1: What is the most profound thing you heard in this journey?
0: I think a really profound thing that I heard and not just once but multiple times was how many sisters in vulnerable points were able to share very honestly that they were entirely lonely and feeling unsupported and women that would say like I can die, and it would take a week for anyone to notice. That was really profound for me, and I I have to, first of all, obviously give thanks for feeling as supportive as I do, with my with my friends and family. But that was that was profound to me in realizing how many people don't have community, don't have support, don't feel seen, mm-hmm. don't feel checked in on there is really a lack of
1: self-sustaining safe space. I think the most profound thing I heard, uh, it wasn't one thing, it was one thing over and over and over again. You know, whether that was literally every single time at an assembly, somebody will say that's my story, or I was gonna say Mm. that, or I've heard my story in all of yours, Mm. or they will verbatim, Say something. Remember that moment when we were in Nairobi and someone said verbatim what somebody mm. had said in London? Mm. And it was like, ah, oh, for me, that was a really, really profound moment of, of humanity and recognizing... One love, baby. It doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter your skin color. doesn't matter your socio- socioeconomic status. doesn't matter which continent you were born in and how many parents you have or don't have. We are first and foremost human, and we have far more in common than what separates us and I think that became uh, almost a guiding light of the work that I do personally now as well as the work we do through camel assembly Mm. okay
0: biggest lesson you've learned in the past four years I think hands down the biggest lesson for me is marching daily I think that has become my actual ethos and belief system, is that whether it's exercise or uh, emotional well-being or your career, things happen when you're persistent, consistent, and when you realize that small acts are really what life is made of, not random big old gestures once in a while.
1: I think my lesson has been I just really really believe in community I think I always have but I, I, it, was, it was so deeply confirmed to me in this journey that I, I couldn't, I can't do anything else <laughs> you know like I believe that change happens in communities that change happens when you can look into somebody's eyes and see the change that you want in them and then believe that it's possible for yourself and I think time and time again we saw that um, that people changed in, in community and so I, I, I think I just really really believe in the vessel of change making through communities that not only give us lessons like empathy and actually allow us to learn from one another in ways that aren't that prejudice, bias uh, judgment might otherwise preclude but beyond that we can maintain that change and we can keep inspiring each other and we can keep creating uh, systems we believe in that are outside the systems that we're often forced to live in. Hmm. Okay, most memorable assembly. Most memorable? Definitely the the most memorable assemblies have been the ones I felt unfit to lead, if I'm honest. There's been about three or four times where I've I've just either nearly had a panic attack or I've I've outright said to you I don't want to lead this assembly um because I wasn't in a good space and it's really hard to get up and lead in a way that makes people feel safe and comfortable and like they can be safe and comfortable and vulnerable when you just feel like shit and you don't feel like anybody should be following anything you're saying especially yourself um so definitely the ones for me are the ones that I d- I have quite a negative feeling in my stomach about but I recognize w- where and why that was and mm. um and I think it's it's important to realize like every every person has those moments where they mm. just feel like I can't do this. Why am I here?
0: Mm. Oh man. The amount of assemblies that like an hour before it's supposed to start shit hits the fan and I'm like
1: I should cancel this. (laughs) You
0: have to cancel this. But what's so beautiful is that we never have. Never. And most memorable assembly, I definitely, I guess I'd have to say the first assembly, you know, September 20th, 2015, is the most memorable assembly because that was the seed, you know, and that was the first circle of life and even like experiencing that and feeling that and The electricity at that time, you know, we're talking pre-Trump in America. That was a very, very special time. And, yeah, that's definitely my most memorable assembly because I think every assembly since then has just been a different iteration of that feeling. And, you know, that first assembly was so special because speaking of circles, full circle, you know, Danny, the third point to this holy trinity of Camel Assembly Radio, Danny, Danny, our sister, um, is actually not only the woman helping us bring this project to life, but she's also the one that hosted and gave us the venue for the very first Camel Assembly four Ever. years ago. You know, and so I'm so happy to. Share one of my favorite people.
1: Danny is not only a very proficient sound engineer; she is an incredibly talented musician and
0: producer, an, singer, an overly majestic writer.
1: Person that has a palpable energy, uh, which we certainly enjoy sitting in the studio with every week. Uh, hi, Danny.
0: Speaking of consistency okay. and power. Hi.
1: Ah! <laughs>
2: You can hear it. you can
1: hear it in her voice.
2: Zan, What's this journey been like for you? Well, a camel assembly journey has been interesting. As a woman coming from the background that I do, it's not always been natural for me to think about things in terms of abundance. Mm. I grew up as I think many women do, thinking that we aren't supposed to support each other. We're supposed to fight. Uh, we're supposed to compete. That there isn't enough to go around. Uh, that there aren't enough jobs. There aren't enough men, um, and that we have to guard our resources or guard our opportunities more than more than I had been comfortable with. So I've been unlearning that on my own for a long time through college, high school, working life, um, but being in New oh, York and mm, being in a room there. surrounded by accomplished, smart. Beautiful women is a real reality check. <laughs> and that's what every camel assembly is. And not only that, but then they're kind. <laughs> <laughs> and then they want to genuinely interested you. in my <laughs> life. <laughs> so it ends up being a very disarming experience. And I think that what we should do, Dan,
0: is exactly what we've done with our other guests, just so people do know a little bit more about you and like, what are you making? What do you care about? Who are you?
2: Well, I'm Danny. I also sing and produce music as Kiosi.
1: Why Kiosi?
2: Kiosi came to me in a series of dreams some years ago. Some of the dreams had no context, it was just a word on its own, uh, and some had elaborate, rich, emotional stories. After some time, I started searching for what the word meant and found the works of this Japanese mathematician named Ito Kiyoshi, who is known for marrying music and math together. What? And that's basically what electronic music is. Wow. Uh, I later found out that Kiyoshi is another word for teacher in Japanese. And at the time when those dreams had been coming to me, my whole life had been revolving around teaching electronic music. Uh, I was doing it in a prison, in community centers. So when the time came to pick my own artist name, it was really no no contest. Wow.
0: I love those Mind moments. blown, mind blown.
2: What I'm making, I mean, I make all sorts of stuff. Obviously I'm making this podcast with you two, which has been a real joy to work on. Uh, I'm scoring a short film right now with a, a mutual friend of ours with another camel, Patricia. Ah, Patricia. I'm making my own music. To make things, you have to be a process person. You have to love the process of making. You know, there's nothing more daunting than looking at a blank screen in Ableton. um, And then you have to just go through it. You have to start making something that might sound ugly at first and then refine it and sand it down and work through every EQ. Mm. That's really most of what it is. Your live show is only 45 minutes long, so you better enjoy the process of making or you're screwed.
0: What do you care about, Danny?
2: That's funny, I've sat in this chair and listened to these questions so many times and only now am I realizing how difficult they are. I care about diversity, equality. I care about providing for my people. As someone who grew up with some scarcity, it's important to me that I know we're gonna be good, whatever that means, mostly financially. Uh, I care about work, actually. I think that's that's one of those blue collar, Italian-American qualities I've carried with me. We are workers. Yeah, workhorses, totally.
1: and And do you think that's also why you care about equality and diversity? Because those things are quite underrepresented in places where people are able to equip themselves like in work, or are they separate? The
2: equality and diversity things are different, I think. I have such early memories of realizing that things aren't equal, as I'm sure many people do. Mm. But I remember a moment in second or third grade, around the time I was becoming obsessed with Harriet Tubman. Anyway, our class was visiting some library and we were asked to write down something that we wanted to do in the world, to fold it up, put it in a box, and then just carry on with our day. And for some reason, I remember writing down, I'm going to end racism. (laughs) Super super cash. (laughs) (laughs) Danny marching
0: daily.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you, Danny, for everything that you are for for this show, but also for this community and this city. Um, For the music industry. My pleasure.
2: And thank you.
1: For (laughs) Italian. (laughs) <laughs> um, and thank you to everybody who has listened to the first season of Camel Assembly Radio. Uh, we will be back with season two, maybe in a different place to where we are right now. You know what I feel like? What?
0: I feel like we should take this on the road. I feel like season two need not be in New York City.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Do a Danny Dicaccio Marching Daily. Danny Dicaccio Marching Daily. Say your last name again. Danny
2: DiCaccio.
0: I've never said it right. <laughs> How do you say it? DiCaccio. DiCaccio? No. DiCaccio?
2: I mean, DiCaccio. Oh, my
0: God. That's DiCaccio. so fire. Yeah. DiCaccio. Danny, Danny DiCaccio. DiCaccio, first of all. <laughs> Can we just have a track of us all just trying to just, like, say Danny say it in the coolest? DiCaccio.
1: Danny DiCaccio. Danny DiCaccio. Danny
0: DiCaccio. Danny DiCaccio. Danny DiCaccio. Danny DiCaccio. Danny DiCaccio. Danny DiCaccio. The
2: Chachio! De Chachio. De Chachio. De Chachio. De Chachio! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Danny the marching
0: daily!
1: Yelda Ali, marching daily. Cashiya Hanam, marching daily. Failed the sound.